You can turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We'll be finishing off chapter 2 this afternoon, starting in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. Give you a minute to get there instead of getting right into it right away. We had a pretty significant section of scripture that we covered last week, and uh, there was a lot of things there. I could probably preach for that a few more times. And even though the section this week is, is much smaller, there's even more contained in this section. Normally, uh, when I prepare my messages, I get them complete, and then I turn to the commentaries to make sure I'm not out in left field on something. And I read through one commentary, one of the verses in this passage, and it started off and it said, the meaning of every word in this verse is disputed. Lovely. But if you look through this, if we stick with what, what Paul has said from the beginning of the book, a couple things I'll mention. Uh, we don't have to worry about those things are debated and disputed. Things are very clear in this passage. So let me read to us Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon, new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. With Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. Why, as if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this afternoon, we pray that the Spirit would teach us illumine this passage would guide us, Lord. We pray that as we go through this, that we'd gain even more of an understanding of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his nature. I pray, Lord, that the things we read about, the error that the Colossians were in, we would heed the cautions here, Lord, and avoid those. We pray, Lord, for those that are here that do not know Christ, that may not understand these things that are spiritually discerned to us, we pray, Lord, as we lift up the name of Christ, that all men and women and children will be drawn to him. That you might open their eyes to their sin and understand their need for Christ. We pray that we continue to glorify you through the worship service this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was talking to a couple of men for, for service today, and I told them I've been listening to a, a lecture from a uh, seminary professor. And he said at the beginning of the semester, he likes to tell his students that uh, at the end of the semester, he would like for them to leave having learned something, but also to realize how little they know. And I think that would be safe for us to say anytime we open up the Word of God to help teach us this afternoon something that we didn't know as we look at the attributes of God and Christ and the Godhead to realize how little we, very know, we really know. So we're going to continue on with Paul's instruction to the Colossians. We've seen... Paul described the nature and attributes of Jesus Christ. He continually emphasizes the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And this was an important thing for the Colossians to grasp, because like we said last week, a misunderstanding of the nature of God opens the pathway into great error. When we understand who God is, we can understand who we are and how we fit into his plans. 
So in this section of his letter, he continues to address the error of the Colossian churches. And although he does stay pretty general in his descriptions of the error and the sources of the error, he starts off this section with therefore, and then goes on to address the errors he mentions. Everything he stated prior to this has a purpose. It's all related to what he is stating here. Paul has been building up to this throughout his letter. And what Paul is trying to convey in this section is quite simple. I think we can sum it up in two main ideas. First, Paul tells them to not be misled by others. And this seems to be a rather common problem in the early church. The apostles were busy spreading the gospel and there were people adding to what the apostles had taught. And those of you that were here when we went through the book of Galatians will recall that this same thing happened in the churches of Galatia. And Paul tells them that there is no reason to add to anything else to what they've been taught. He goes into church structure, how they fit into the body with Christ as his head. But primarily, he wants them to know that what they had been taught is complete. It was sufficient and nothing else should be added to it. But yet there were those that were misleading the Colossians, trying to sway them away from the foundation that had been laid in Christ. And unfortunately, this is an error that has not ceased today. We still see those that take what is in Scripture and add to it. And it may seem to you that this passage is not relevant to us today, but it has as much applicability to us today as it did when the Colossians, when they read Paul's letter. We need to be on guard, to be aware and watch out for those that will mislead us by mixing error with truth. And Paul presents truth here to correct the error. He gently guides the Colossians back to what they had been taught. And the second thing you'll see here is Paul is telling them how they should live. He continues on. He started doing this in the prior section we're in, and he'll continue on with that idea through the rest of the letter. The foundation of Christ has been laid, so Paul tells them how they should live in regards to that foundation. He describes what they should look like as followers of Christ who are resting in his sufficiency. So let's get into this passage. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Last week, we covered a warning in verse 8 telling them to not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, which led them away from Christ. And here we see another warning from Paul. We see a pattern from Paul. He gives instruction and then he states the therefores what their response to that destruction should be. We see this in verse 6 and 16 of chapter 2, and we'll see it again in chapter 3. So therefore, it seems to be referring to the overall idea Paul has made in the previous verses that we are bound by and live for Christ. The Colossians were to follow instruction given on him. There was no need to add to or take away from it. He is sufficient. There is fullness in Christ. So therefore, let no one pass judgment on you pertaining to food and drink, festivals, new moons, or Sabbath. Paul is telling the Colossians, do not let anyone form an opinion of you based on your actions concerning these things. Paul had already vividly described that Christ is preeminent over everything. He described who and what Christ is in detail. He painted a great picture to everyone who might understand Christ and his nature. Paul presented a correct picture of Christ. He then pictured us hopeless and helpless in need of a savior. As the redeemed, we were all dead in our sins. We were all enemies of God. All of us had a sin debt we could not pay. Without Christ, we are hopeless. So you can picture us, dead in our sins, opposed to God, unable to do anything about our condition, rightfully holding a debt of sin that God the Father held against us. And we're offered the redemption and reconciliation through Christ. Peace was made between God the Father and us through the blood of the cross of Christ. We can see our true hopelessness and our great need for Christ. We see our condition that could not change without God's intervention, and we see the transformation we received through Christ. Paul described to us a Christ who is preeminent and a Christ who is sufficient. Paul focused everything back to Christ. 
We need to walk in Christ, establishing the faith. No one should delude us with plausible, persuasive arguments. Nobody should carry us away captive by philosophy and vain deceit and not according to Christ. And here Paul says no one should pass judgment in questions of food and drink and festivals, new moons or a Sabbath. We should be grounded in Christ, rooted up and built up in him. And if the Colossians had heeded all that Paul mentioned, then they would not be dealing with these issues we're reading about. They would have been aware of the deception and the false teaching. And Paul does not give us specifics. He doesn't tell us exactly what the issues were. He just gives those five things, the food, the drink, festivals, new moons, and a Sabbath. We can look to the book of Romans, which was written a few years earlier than the letter to Colossians, where Paul covered most of these issues. He covered the dietary issues as well as observance of days. And he went quite in depth on the matters in Romans. So this appears to be another common issue in the early churches. In Romans, Paul states that we are free to eat what we want and observe what days we want as long as we follow two conditions. First, we must do these things in honor of the Lord. And second, that we never should place a stumbling block in the way of another believer. We should pursue peace for a mutual upbuilding of one another. He stated there that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So just like what was being done in the Romans, there were evidently people who were passing judgment on the Colossians for these same things, for food and drink and festivals and new moons and a Sabbath. Since Paul does not give us specifics, we cannot be certain of the exact issues in their source. They appear to be Jewish and Hellenistic beliefs, or one or the other, or a combination of both of them. But whatever the source, those passing judgment were doing it erroneously. If we think about ourselves, we have those same tendencies. We often lean towards sinful judging of one another. There's something within our sinful flesh that pulls us toward finding fault in others in an unscriptural way while overlooking our own faults. There is a time for judgment. Paul tells the Corinthians to judge those inside the church, but there's a correct way to do that. There's a scriptural reason to do that, and there's a scriptural cause for doing that. When we have those sinful judgmental tendencies, and we all do, we need to stop ourselves and consider Philippians 2, where it states, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So for the sake of our brothers and sisters, we need to consider others more important than ourselves. We need to stop being selfish and put the good of our brothers and sisters before our own good. When we have the tendency to simply judge one another, we need to go to Romans 12, where it states, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. We should try and outdo one another in showing honor while loving one another. We need to squash those tendencies when they arise in our flesh and get ourselves in the correct mindset. We need to heed what Scripture states and stop adding our own rules to it. And I think that's what Paul is pointing to here. The people were adding to what had been taught, mixing in man-made rules with what had been taught to them. They took a little bit of truth that had been taught and mixed that with their own ideas. We're going to look at that a little bit more in a bit, but first let's consider where those five things in verse 16 came from. Paul says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That gives us an idea of their origin. The things mentioned in verse 16 were shadows of the things to come. Questions that come up pertaining to those things. I think we can identify somewhat with these issues if we think about it. Anyone who is redeemed and is, is within the covenant community of believers for any length of time has most likely come across these very same issues. Is it lawful for us to drink this or that? Should we celebrate this or that? Questions over what can and cannot be done on the Sabbath. 
As a matter of fact, if we knew nothing of this letter, if you'd never read this letter to Colossians before and I presented everything Paul states in this letter to you in my own words, you would think this was referring to an issue in our churches today. And the reason for that is that these are still issues that are being discussed and debated. When we consider verse 16 and the five things Paul mentioned, we can see where these ideas initiated as Paul refers to them as a shadow of things to come. Their origin was in the Old Testament. Some aspects of these things have been abrogated in the New Testament. They have been done away with, but it appears that there was some holding on and perhaps even mixing in some secular ideas with these. So we consider food and drink and festivals, new moons and the Sabbath. Prior to Christ's incarnation, we can see that these all pointed to Christ. These were a shadow of the things that would come. Shadow and substance, two concepts Paul uses to help us understand his instruction. And although substance is a good translation that gives us the meaning of this verse, we may be able to understand a little better if we can give some additional definitions of the word substance. Substance is a word body in Greek, so let's read it as such. The body belongs to Christ, but the shadow of that body were the things that occurred prior to Christ. The shadows were those things that pointed to him. They were only a shadow of him. They were not him, but ultimately they pointed to him. They made us look forward to him. The shadows pointed the prophets and the righteous people to the one that they longed for, to the one that they longed to know. So you may be wondering, is Paul stating that the things in, in verse 16 no longer apply to us? If we examine these verses in context, we can see that it is not the things Paul mentions that are the real problem. It is how they are being added to and misapplied. It's the fact that there were some who were judging and disqualifying others according to these five things that Paul mentions. So we can summarize it as this. Paul is stating that believers do not need to adhere to stringently defined man-made religious practices. Those at Colossae may have thought they were doing right, but they refused to listen to the instructions that they were given. They thought that their man-made laws were more important than the one the shadows pointed to. And we see this over and over in the Gospels with the Pharisees. They lifted their man-made laws over those of God. I want to dig deeper into one of those things mentioned in verse 16, a Sabbath. So the question is, is Paul abrogating the Sabbath? Is he doing away with it? Is he stating that we no longer have to observe the Sabbath? And obviously, no, he's not. If you look at these verses, he is speaking of a wrong view of the Sabbath. He is speaking of those that were passing judgment due to a wrong view of the Sabbath. So let's go to Matthew 12 so we can try and understand what Paul is stating. Matthew 12 reads, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on a Sabbath, his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater then the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees were concerned with the letter of the law. They majored in the minors. They were telling the Messiah, they were telling the creator of all, the one that was the author of creation, that he was allowing the disciples to violate the Sabbath by plucking grain. The creation is lecturing the creator. Jesus tells them that he is Lord over all, that he is Lord even over the Sabbath, that he is preeminent over all things. He is superior over all things, including the Sabbath. And Matthew continues on in chapter 12 with another Sabbath lesson. It reads, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. 
And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus Christ, the creator of all, the author and finisher of our faith, stated that it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Once again, he did not abrogate the Sabbath. He described to us the purpose of the Sabbath. Mark gives us some additional facts concerning what Matthew portrayed. At the end of the second chapter of Mark, pertaining to the same occurrence, he states this. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was instituted to benefit man, not to hinder him. It was not intended to limit us in doing good on that day. It was not intended for us to be more concerned about observing rules than the one that instituted it. The Colossians were being judged not by what the apostles and Jesus had taught, but they were being judged by secular ideas on worship combined with Old Testament practices that were only shadows of the Christ that had come. They were being judged by man-made views on the Sabbath. Do you notice that neither Jesus or Paul or Matthew or Mark stated that we do not have to observe the Sabbath? We've seen them all describe to us his purpose and who it points us to. And Jeff read us Hebrews 8 where it mentioned the high priest with their gifts and sacrifices. It stated that they were a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, clothed himself in humanity. The Old Testament high priest pointed us to him. The shadows we see in the Old Testament are but a dim outline to us. It gives us an incomplete picture, just enough to know what's coming, but not enough to see the whole picture. And that's what Paul is stating here. And additionally, this verse is not stating that we can worship in any manner we like and we cannot be judged for it. The Sabbath is a day of rest in which we worship our Creator in a way that, that He demands, in a way acceptable to Him as defined by His revealed will to us in Scripture. We are regulated in the way we worship by Scripture, and we perform that on the Sabbath. He has commanded us to worship him, and he has commanded us how we will worship him. We are not bound by secular ideas on the Sabbath, but we are bound by what the Scripture demands of us on the Sabbath. God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, and worship is not to be willfully neglected nor forsaken. The Sabbath is to be kept holy unto the Lord by observing a holy day of rest. And our confession describes the Sabbath in this way. It reads, The Sabbath is kept holy to the Lord when people have first prepared their hearts appropriately and arranged their everyday affairs in advance. Then they observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their secular employment and recreation. Not only that, but they also fill the whole time with public and private acts of worship and duties of necessity and mercy. So in this passage, we see that Paul is also telling us that there, are, there was a reason behind the Old Testament practices. They served a purpose. They were a shadow of the things to come. The Old Testament practices pointed to the one who would come, to the one that now has already come. These shadows gave those prior to Christ's incarnation a small glimpse of what would come. The dim outline we saw in the Old Testament became a complete picture in the New Testament with Christ. With Christ's incarnation, the shadow was filled in. It was completed. There was no longer a reason to wonder what the substance of the shadow was. We saw that shadow make clear in Christ. And if the shadow had been revealed, there's no longer a need to look at the shadow, to look to the shadow. So why were the Colossians still looking to the shadow? Why shall we focus on the shadows now that the one who cast those shadows has been revealed to us? Paul is pointing the Colossians and us back to Christ time and time again. Everything starts with him and everything points to him. 
Those things set up as shadows in the Old Testament pointed us to Christ, to the Messiah. We should not misappropriate the shadows outside of their intended use. They were a foreshadow of the one to come. They directed us to him. And the Messiah has come, so the focus is on him, not on his shadows, not on the things pointing to him. Instruction has been given to us on him and is all we need to know. Now we must follow it and we must follow it nothing else. It's not Christ plus anything. It is Christ alone. And know sometimes we have a hard time giving things up. We get into the habit of doing this or that and habits are hard to break. And I think that was part of the reason why there were these issues. It was hard to stop what they'd been taught prior to Christ, even though it was wrong. So they and we need to focus on Scripture as revealed to us. We need to focus on the Christ of Scripture, the one who all of Scripture points to. We need to focus on what those shadows pointed us to. And Paul gives us another warning in verse 18. He said, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So Paul gives us some more examples of the error in Colossae of how they were being misled. Once again, it's not specific, but somewhat general, but it gives us enough insight to understand the error that was happening there. They were being judged and they were being disqualified. Let no one disqualify you. Let's look a bit closer into the word disqualified to ensure we understand what Paul means here. Disqualified gives the idea of a judge awarding a prize in a public game. But in context, as used here, it represents the judge defrauding someone of the prize. It represents a, a bad judgment. It represents depriving someone of a prize. So what prize would they be defrauding them of? The prize of complete fulfillment and joy in Christ. The prize of being totally content in him with the need for absolutely nothing else. The prize of Christ being sufficient. He is our prize. It lies within the one who redeemed us. Verses 16 and 17 taken alone might leave us wondering, but when we read them along with verse 18, we see that Paul is referring to perversions of what they had been taught. This is where I think we may see some secular ideas mixed in with Jewish ideas. Paul's referring to those that are instilling their own rules on the Colossians. So we can see Paul describing someone among the Colossians who is defrauding them, who is depriving them of the prize by misleading them. The NASB states this verse in this way. It reads, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. So how are they being misled? How are they being defrauded? By those insisting on a few things from them. As we go through these, think about how some of these are still issues today, how we still struggle with these very things. So first, he says asceticism. What is that? It can be described as a false humility. It's a practice of strict self-denial as a measure of spiritual discipline. It's when we deny ourselves of things, we measure how good we are by how much we deny ourselves. The more we deny ourselves, the better we are. The root problem does not lie in denying ourselves. The problem is thinking that we are somehow better in the eyes of God by our self-denial. It's valuing what we do over what Christ has done for us. It's thinking that our actions surpass those of Christ. It's acting as if Christ is not sufficient for us. So let's look to an example of what can be described as false humility in Matthew 6.16. It says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So the hypocrites fasted for a particular reason to be seen by others. They deprived themselves of food to appear better than others. But Jesus tells us that when we fast, we should do it in a way that others will not know. So we see a non-biblical view of fasting versus a biblical view. 
And that describes to us how asceticism can pervert things we do and take something that is good and make it sinful. And the second thing they were being judged on was worship of angels. This idea fits into some Jewish mystical and apocalyptic text. We've already seen Paul prove to us that Christ is superior over created beings. Chapter 1, verse 16, he created everything. They were created through him and for him. In chapter 2, he said he is ahead of all rule and authority. Chapter 2, verse 15, he said he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So if Christ is preeminent over everything, why worship something that he created? We see what happened in Revelation 19 when John fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. The angel stated in Revelation 19.10, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. These people were insisting that the Colossians practice these things. They were insisting on idol worship in violation of the Ten Commandments. They were trying to persuade the Colossians to totally disregard Scripture and ultimately this pointing them away from Christ. This is why throughout this letter, Paul is pointing them back to Christ. And the last thing he mentions is visions, going on in details about visions. Somehow this seems to fit pretty well today. There are plenty of people who totally disregard Scripture but claim to have seen visions. The problem is that these visions usually contradict Scripture. Anything that contradicts Scripture is an error no matter what it is. So the false teachers are giving visions priority over Christ and what has been taught of the gospel. They were going on in detail about these visions as if they superseded the things taught by Christ and the apostles. And the result of that is that the people were puffed up without reason. They thought they had some importance due to the things they were insisting they had seen. They were prideful. They were self-conceited by their sensuous minds. And the word sensuous is translated from the Greek word for body. I think Paul is using this contra to contrast people who relied on their own minds, their own bodies, and ignored what verse 19 tells us. These people were confident in their flesh without reason and therefore actually opposed to Christ. So what should the Colossians be doing? We see that by what they were not doing. He says, And not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. They were not persevering in Christ. They were not holding fast to Christ. They were pushing people away from Christ. Paul is pointing them back toward him. Paul tells the consequences of moving away from Christ as the head of the church. He describes again what he already described in chapter 1, that Christ is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. So picture the structure in your mind. This applies in both our local assembly and of all of Christianity. We have a body consisting of the redeemed, different people with different gifts and talents. We here are part of the local church, and we're also part of the church universal. Locally at GFC, we have a body with each one of us of his redeemed here as different parts of one body. These parts together form the body of believers. And the part that controls us, the head of this body, is Jesus Christ. He is the head of this local body at GFC and also of the church universal. So consider Paul's illustration of the body as applied to the church. Each one of us had different body parts working together with our head, our mind directing it all, we can lose parts of our body and still function, although perhaps not as well. We can lose an entire leg, and as long as we have our head, our mind, we can still have function, but it will affect the entire body. Other body parts will have to make up for the loss of that body part. Our physical bodies have joints and ligaments to hold our body parts together, and Paul states that within this body of believers, we are held together and we are nourished by God. We covered that same idea last week when we discussed being rooted in Christ, being rooted up and built up in him. Roots provide stability. They provide essential nutrients to sustain life. We get our nourishment from God. 
That is how the body is designed to be. But in verse 19, Paul warns that those who go off into worship of angels into asceticism, who distract those are following something, they're following something else. They're not following Christ. And, and this is not an honest misunderstanding of Scripture. This is not some minor mistake Paul is speaking of. He states, let no one disqualify you. Paul is speaking of someone coming into the body and trying to take hold of the head, trying to take place of Christ. And we see this in different writings throughout the New Testament. Paul is not the only one that warns us that there are those that creep in, those that try and take over by misleading, those that come in to disrupt and destroy the unity of the body. This is an intentional act. When we allow that, when we stop taking our direction from Christ as our head, when we allow a person to direct us away from Christ, the body is doomed for death. If we cut off the means of nourishment, the means of sustainment, the means of direction, we are left with a body that will die. No body can survive without a head, and this applies to the church body as well. But the opposite is true also. If we want a healthy body, if we want to be nourished and grow as a body, then we need to cling to Christ and follow him as our head. He will knit us together. He will take us as individual parts and make an entire body in service to him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, holding fast to Christ, a body nourished and knit together, given a growth that comes from God. So after pointing the Colossians back to Christ, Paul transitions. He presents a question to them. If they're in Christ, why do they do the things that only pertain to the old man, to those not in Christ? He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. We can see how Paul phrases his words to get his readers to think, if with Christ you died. They were claiming to have died to the things of the world just like we proclaim. So Paul is saying, since you proclaim to be dead to the things of this world, if you are truly dead, then your life should show that. It should reflect that. There should be fruits in your life that depict that. There should be evidence of that death to worldly things. But what they were doing in these verses are opposed to what those who are dead to the world should be doing. Paul says if they are dead to the things of the world, then why are they submitting to regulations? So let's examine this concept of how we identify and how we are identified by others. Let's look to how Jesus described false prophets in Matthew because it applies to us. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus states that twice. You will recognize them by their fruits. He states that we will know false prophets by the fruit they bear. So what does this mean? If I'm trying to identify grapes, would I see them on a vine that has thorns? I've never seen grapes on a vine that has thorns, nor have I ever seen figs growing on branches with thistles. And Jesus is stating that they're identifying features of grapes. They have a certain leaf, a particular color, unique characteristics that identify them. There are attributes we expect to see on grapevines. If we're truly looking at grapes, we're truly looking at figs, they have identifying qualities to them. We know what to expect in their leaves and fruit. We can identify them by their characteristics. Matthew 12, Jesus states, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. So Jesus states it again, you will know the tree by its fruit. So Christ and Paul are stating that we too are identified by our actions, by what we do, by our characteristics, by our fruit. So if I state I'm a Christian, you should be able to see things that identify me as that. You can say, well, if Morgan is truly a Christian, there are things that we know Christians do, traits 
that true Christians are known by, things by which we can identify him. So let me give you an example. If I say that I'm a Christian, I love the Lord, but I never follow anything contained in scripture that would not match up. If I said I love the Lord, but I lie and I cheat and I steal and I covet, that would not match up. Why? Because in John 14, Jesus stated, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And how can I truly love Christ for not keeping his commandments? I can't. It's impossible. If I were like that, I would not portray the traits that Scripture identifies with one who loves Christ. We can rely on the truth of Scripture to be our guide. We can rely on His truth to describe to us what characteristics Christians should have. We can rely on Scripture to describe to us what I should look like if I proclaim to be a Christian. And Paul is telling the Colossians that these particular things they are doing, they are not representative of Christians. Submitting to regulations according to human precepts and teaching, not those of Christ, not those of Scripture. That is not characteristic of a Christian. Paul is asking why they are concerned with man-made teachings if they are in submission to the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 3.24 reads, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John says that we can know that he abides in us by the indwelling spirit believers have. The lost do not have the indwelling of the spirit. The lost do not have that spirit convicting them of sin the redeemed do. Those are traits that identify us. If I state that I am a Christian, yet I have no desire for the things of God, if I still cheat and lie and steal and lust and covet without remorse, if I have no desire for worship, if I never have a desire for reading a scripture, how can I be redeemed? How could I have been born into newness of life if I still look like and identify with the old man that should have passed away? Some of these Colossians proclaimed to be redeemed. They proclaimed to be followers of Christ, yet their actions contradicted that. So Paul says, if you proclaim Christ, if you die to the things of the world, that should be evident by your life. Every one of us can be identified by fruit, by traits, by characteristics. And Paul is telling the Colossians that their fruit does not match up with their proclamation of Christ. If they die to these things, then why do their actions not match up? And he closes, he said, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. When we consider the strict adherence to rules and thinking that rule following equates to righteousness, what image do we get in our minds? That gives me the picture of the Pharisees. They adhered to all kinds of regulations and that gave them an appearance of wisdom. That made them look religious outwardly despite whatever was happening, happening inwardly. Consider the story about the Pharisee in Luke 18 that Pastor Brian had covered. It said, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So isn't that an image of one who adheres to rules, thinking that the rules will justify them? I fast. I tithe. I, I, I. His focus is on self. But the other side, the tax collector, the one who was despised in his day, the one the Pharisee referred to, this is how he responded. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you were looking solely at the outward appearances, if you were comparing the Pharisee who made a production of his rule following versus this tax collector, which one would outwardly appear to be the religious one? And that's what Paul is referring to, the Pharisee with his self-made religion, the Pharisee who practiced, practiced asceticism, the Pharisee who would appear to be more godly from merely outward appearances. And Isaiah 29 and Mark 7 describe this person, those that honor 
with their lips, yet their hearts are far from God. So self-made religion and asceticism. How good are these at stopping sin? Man-made rules and adherence to them may make us appear to be wise, just like it did for the Pharisees. Those rules may make us appear to be religious to the unknowing. And man-made rules give us a false assurance of truth, but they only serve to mislead us. Because no matter how disciplined we are, no matter how well we follow man-made rules, ultimately our only hope lies in Christ. Our hope is not in us. Our hope is not in the power of our will. Our hope lies nowhere but in Christ, period. And how often are people unwilling to accept that Christ has done it all, that it is finished in him? How often does, does man think that he needs to help out God by making up his own rules by doing works? Asceticism and severity to the body. What can man do that God cannot? Why do we not understand and accept that it is finished? If we were able to appease the wrath of God on our own merit, there would not be a need for Jesus. If it were possible for us to perfectly uphold God's law, to discipline our bodies to the point of perfection, there would be no need for a Messiah. We do not gain access to the presence of God by trusting in man-made ordinances. These things are of no value in conquering the sinful body. We cannot do this of our own will. It is only through Christ. We need Christ. We need to follow and serve him. We have no strength in our own flesh. We are strengthened in him and only in him. So go ahead, see how much willpower you have to stop your body of flesh from sinning. See how long it takes for you to fail when you try and do it in your own ability. We cannot trust in our flesh. We do not look to rules for our salvation or from favor from God. We cannot work for our redemption. It only comes by the finished work of Christ. All roads lead us to Jesus Christ. Everything points to him. All scripture directs us to the Savior. We haven't even scratched the surface of who Christ is, but we should now have a better understanding of his preeminence. Paul is directing the Colossians and us toward him. Everything focuses on him and nothing focuses on us. It's he that is preeminent over all things. The Colossians were misled and often to error, and we are apt to succumb to the very same dilemma if we do not take heed. The solution for us is to know truth from Scripture. When we know truth, that anything, anything outside of that will become apparent. But gaining truth is not an easy undertaking. Solomon summed it up when he stated in Ecclesiastes, much study is a weariness of the flesh. Knowledge does not come easily, and truth is gained by diligent study. Biblical knowledge comes by daily discipline of being in the word and seeking out truth day after day after day. If we build our foundation on the word of God, if we have a strong foundation, then we are less apt to be misled by others, and we must be diligent in our study of Scripture. The shadow has been made clear. Our Messiah has been revealed to us. All roads point to Christ. He is supreme and he is sufficient. So let's be full and satisfied in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the, the blessing of being born in a place in the country and a, to be able to come and to gather, Lord, to have a place to open up your word freely. And a day where we have such great access to study guides and materials, more access to books and electronic devices that we can ever fully utilize. But Lord, we also live in a world that will distract us, where we can be distracted and taken away and misguided and away from what we should be doing. We pray, Lord, that each day you would help us, we would seek you out, that we would discipline our bodies to study and seek out the truth from the word, especially in the world we see today when the very same errors there were in this church at Colossae, we still see them today around us. 
We pray, Lord, that you would build up this church. You would build us up in the knowledge of you and your will. We pray, Lord, that each day we'd cultivate that desire to seek you out more, to open up your word. We would long to wake up in the morning to open up your word, to come to you in prayer. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be able to learn from those that have gone before us. Lord, we have barely even scratched the surface of who Christ is and his nature and his attributes. I pray, Lord, each time we open up your word, it'd become a little bit more clear. We'd learn more about him. We can never exhaust that our minds don't even have the capability to understand you. But I pray, Lord, we would seek out to, to know you more each day. I pray, Lord, also for those who are here this afternoon that do not know Christ, that we're like all of us once were, and enemies with you. We didn't seek you out and you sought us. We pray you would do that to them also. Pray you'd help them to see their sin and their need for Christ. They too might have their sins nailed to the cross. I pray, Lord, as we go out this week, no matter what failures we had this past week, Lord, that we can start afresh. We know that your mercies are new each day. Pray we would seek out to serve you first and foremost. We'd be busy while, while it's day, Lord, and we would use the time that you've given to us wisely. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.